Let's pray together once more. Let's pray. Father, now in our gathering of worship, we've come to the hour of preaching. And we do believe that this is your appointed means to awaken faith in the hearts of your people. And so we submit to your will. We come now before your word, asking you to use the preaching of it to enliven faith in all of our hearts. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. What is the fundamental problem the Bible was written to address? What was the fundamental problem the Bible was written to address? Not the same question exactly as why was the Bible written. I think the answer to that question would be for God to reveal Himself to man. But that's not the problem the Bible was written to address. What is the main problem that the Bible was written to address? The fundamental problem the Bible was written to address is how wicked sinners, we all are, can be made right with a holy, righteous, and just God. And the fact that this is the fundamental problem the Bible was written in part to address is great news. Because friends, this problem is your biggest problem. And it's my biggest problem. I have sinned against God, and I so badly need to be made right with Him by some sort of standard that he would acknowledge and affirm. Our greatest problem is not whether or not we'll one day find ourselves or realize our potential or accomplish our dreams. Our fundamental problem is not whether or not we'll find the one, or once we do, if that relationship will be in every way happy. It's not whether or not you'll have enough money to cover your expenses next year, or if your job's secure, or if you're investing enough money for retirement. It's not whether or not you will send your kids to the perfect school next year. It's not COVID or global warming or inflation or whatever proverbial ball the politicians in Washington are batting back and forth. These things, real problems as they are, are infinitesimally small in comparison to what our real and most fundamental problem is. Our problem, your problem, my problem is that we have sinned against the holy God and are under His just wrath and need so badly a way of salvation if we're to have any hope of forgiveness and eternal life. The passage we're considering this morning at the end of Isaiah 52 and into Isaiah 53 addresses exactly this problem. In some sense, I think it can be said that this passage is the heart of the Old Testament. And I think we have good reason for concluding that, not only because of its message, but because of the way the New Testament reflects on this passage. There are more allusions in the New Testament to Isaiah 53 than any other passage. Uh, And it's quoted only second most to Psalm 110. In this series of sermons we've been in that we've given the title, The Christ is Coming, we've looked at many passages in the Old Testament that anticipate the coming of the Messiah. We looked at Genesis 3.15 where it's promised that the seed of the woman would come and crush Satan's head. We've considered in Genesis 12 what we read there about Abraham and his promised seed who will bring blessing to the nations. We've considered Exodus 12 and the message there about the Passover, which in some ways prefigured what Christ would do as our sacrificial Passover lamb. We've considered Deuteronomy 18, where we learned about the prophet greater than Moses who would come and who would speak to us the words of God fully and finally and definitively. We looked last week At 1 Chronicles 17, which tells us of the coming son of David who will reign on his father's throne forever. Though all of these passages inform our expectation and anticipation for the coming of the Messiah, none of these passages we've considered have expressly addressed the most fundamental problem we're presented with in the Old Testament. Maybe the Passover is the closest. But now, in this passage, we have the answer. We're breaking into the flow of Isaiah's prophecy. You may know, if you're familiar with the book of Isaiah, you can pretty neatly break the book up into two major sections. The first section, Isaiah chapter 1 through 39, contains much about the coming judgment of God against Israel. And then in chapters 40 through 66, uh, we are told of the one who's going to come, the Davidic son, the servant of the Lord, who will come and bring redemption and reconciliation for 
the people of God. Isaiah 40 begins with a word of comfort. We read there, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hands double for all her sins. The prospect for hope is announced here in Isaiah 40. The grounds for this hope will be expressed most profoundly in our passage this morning in Isaiah 53. In many previous chapters in Isaiah, forgiveness has been promised, but its basis has not yet been established. But here in Isaiah, the end of 52 into chapter 53, we learn how it is that a just and holy God can and will pardon sinners. Isaiah 53 is one of five songs in the latter chapters of Isaiah that center around this shadowy figure uh, that Isaiah calls the servant of the Lord. He's clearly identified with God's redemptive purposes for his people. Isaiah 53 reveals him as a suffering servant, one who will be despised and rejected, one who will be pierced for our transgressions and ultimately will be slain for the sins of many. But he will again live, we're told, and he will be exalted, and through him many will be counted righteous before God. I said last week that Old Testament expectation of the coming Messiah was dominated by anticipation for the coming Davidic king who would reign on his father's throne forever. That's who everyone's expecting on the eve of Christ's coming, of the anointed son, the one who will reign on his father's throne forever. As far as we can tell, no one associated this suffering servant with that Davidic king. We have no reflection either in Scripture or in extra-biblical literature that gives us any indications that the Jews saw these two figures, the coming Davidic king and the suffering servant, as being located in the same person. No one except for, of course, Jesus of Nazareth. In one sense, we could say that this was his most extraordinary contribution as a Jewish rabbi, if we could even speak that way. Jesus is the first one to advance the thesis that the Davidic king promised in 1 Chronicles 17 and so many other passages and the suffering servant of Isaiah 53 would be one and the same person, namely himself. Jesus viewed himself as the Davidic king and the suffering servant, and part of his teaching was to help his disciples understand that the king who had come must suffer for the people in order that they could be saved. And that it was actually the pathway of suffering, humiliation, and death that would function in the most profound and unimagined way as something of the king's coronation ceremony. This is how the Davidic son would become the king of kings and the lord of lords. And you just wonder, uh, in Luke 2, as Jesus, the 12-year-old boy, is in the temple speaking with the teachers, did he perhaps take them to Isaiah 53 and query them, what do you make of this passage? How do you see Isaiah 53 being fulfilled? We've talked enough about the Davidic king, but what about this figure? Certainly later on at the end of Jesus' life, after his death and resurrection, this is precisely what he does uh, to those men on the road to Emmaus. Uh, he's speaking there with these two men about the events of uh, the past couple of days and the crucifixion of Christ. And of course, they don't know they're talking to Christ himself. And in Luke 24, Jesus says this to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into His glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, He interpreted to them in all the Scriptures the things concerning Himself. A few verses on, He did this very thing for His disciples also. As He's gathered with them after the resurrection, and they're putting together all the intertextual connections about who the Christ was and who He would be and how Jesus has fulfilled the Scriptures, they're also we read that Jesus reasons from Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. And he says to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. They had somehow missed it. But no one was expecting that the son of David, the Christ, the anointed one, had in any way to suffer. Well, Isaiah 53 provides this link for us more than any other passage. I'd like to open it up this morning under five main headings. Most of our time will be in the first three. And by most of our time, I mean 90% of our time. Okay, so if we're at the end of point three and it's been a long day, we're soon to be done. Okay, five main headings. They are the five stanzas 
of this servant song. We'll open up the song one stanza at a time. Point number one is stanza one. Isaiah 52, 13 through 15, the servant will suffer and then be exalted. That's my description of those verses. Stanza one, the servant will suffer and then be exalted. Look, if you would, at Isaiah 52, verse 13, this would be a good time to remind you that the chapter divisions in our Bibles are not inspired. This would be one of those areas where the editors who have put together those divisions really got it wrong. The song starts in Isaiah 52, verse 13. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them, they see, and that which they have not heard, they understand. Isaiah 52, 13 through 15, this first stanza, functions as something of a prologue to this song. And as such, it serves at least a couple of important functions. First of all, it introduces the subject of the song, who is, of course, the servant of the Lord. It begins with those words, behold my servant, look at my servant. He is the subject of the song that is going to unfold. Behold my servant. And then secondly, we see that in these verses verses 13 through 15, we have something of a summary of who he will be and what he will do. Isaiah says, my servant will act wisely. That's the summary of what he will do. When we get to the end of the song, that can sort of be written over this entire song. He will act wisely, the Lord says, and as a result, he will be high and lifted up. But not before what we have in verse 14 which is extraordinary, mysterious, and in many ways confounding. Verse 14 opens with the words, as many were astonished at you. Literally, as many as were appalled at you. The servant will be appalling to those who look on. As many as were astonished or appalled at you. And then you have this parenthetical phrase to explain what he just said. What is why will people be appalled at the servant? Why will they be astonished at him? And then what follows in verse 14, I believe, is a description not of Jesus' earthly ministry, but particularly of Jesus' passion and humiliation and suffering at the cross. It's a description of his physical appearance in his suffering. He was appalling to the eyes. His appearance, we read, was so marred beyond human semblance, or some translations will say more than any other man, and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. The suffering servant in his humiliation, we read, we learn, was so scourged and mutilated and beaten and bloodied as to appear as something other than a man. Well, friends, maybe you've seen violent depictions of Jesus suffering in various forms of art, and you may think, this depiction is sensationalistic or it's over the top. But this text might suggest otherwise. But personally, I think most depictions of Jesus' suffering are understated. And most depictions of Jesus' passion and crucifixion in the realm of high art, for example, tend to present a picture of Jesus in which you certainly know he's suffering, you certainly know he's on the cross, he's dying, but he often looks fairly healthy. Uh, and in some of those depictions, even attractive. That is not the picture we get here. We learn he was so butchered and brutalized and scourged as to no longer even resemble a human person. Like if you were to look at him at the height of his suffering, you would think, what even is this before me? He might have resembled something more of a beaten and bloodied animal than a human being. And how did people respond to this visage of Jesus? They responded viscerally. Uh, they were appalled. They were astonished. Later, Isaiah will say he looked like one from whom men hide their faces. Like, I can't look at him without getting sick or without weeping or without being appalled. That's the picture that we get of this suffering servant. And it is this picture that is meant to set up a contrast in this opening prologue. Apparently, this one who was so appalling in his suffering and humiliation, this very one, God will exalt. Verse 15 picks up the sentence, as many were appalled at him, 
so shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. The language is poetic. It's heavily symbol-laden. But I believe the idea is that this one who is so marred beyond human semblance, he will eventually rule the nations. He will be their savior. He will sprinkle them. That is to say, he is actually going to be the one who cleanses and delivers them. And even kings will shut their mouths before him. That is to say, he will outrank those kings. When this king walks into the room, their mouths will be stopped. He will outrank them. They will submit to him and answer to him. And this mystery of how one so marred and appalling and despised could become the one who cleanses the nations and shuts the mouth of kings, it will be revealed how this will come to pass. For we read at the end of verse 15, For that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. This great mystery will be be revealed. How it is that the son of David, the Davidic king, who will be exalted, king of kings and lord of lords, how he will also be this one so marred, this suffering servant. You see the contrast between the suffering servant and this one who is exalted. But here in this prologue to this song, we have established the path. Suffering and then glory. All right, stanza two. Stanza one, the servant will suffer and be exalted. Stanza two, the servant will be despised and rejected by none. Look with me at Isaiah 53, verse 1. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Verse 1 of Isaiah 53 anticipates unbelief in the message that's about to be given. It anticipates the rejection of its message and eventually the rejection of Christ himself. That's what's meant by verse 1. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Isaiah is saying, who will believe the message that I'm about to tell you? Who would embrace this suffering servant. Who would believe or embrace this word that I'm about to tell you about him? We know that this is the meaning of Isaiah 53 verse 1 because it's referenced in a few places in the New Testament. Uh, John in his gospel cites this verse at the end of Jesus' public ministry to account for the widespread unbelief in Jesus and his message. John writes in John 12, though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. So that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? The Apostle Paul also cites this verse to explain the unbelief of some among the nations. In Romans chapter 10, verse 15, he says, How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news! But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? In other words, this verse, the opening verse of chapter 53, anticipates unbelief in the gospel itself, the essence of which will be contained in the verses that follow. So what do we learn now about this suffering servant in the verses that follow? What do we learn about this person? What do we learn about him that is so incredible, so unbelievable? Verse 2, for he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. What do we learn about him here in verse 2? Very simply put, he was not attractive. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him. No beauty that we should desire him. Have you ever noticed how telegenic TV preachers are? Uh, with uh, you know their toothy smile and their makeup and the $5,000 suit. Okay, that's not what Jesus looked like at all. The suffering servant did not appear like many of the Hollywood actors who play him in the movies. His appearance was humble and lowly, and he was probably physically unattractive. 
The overall impression he gave, at least by his appearance, was unspectacular and unappealing. But then we learn in verse 3 that he was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. He was despised and rejected by men. That is a general description of how Jesus would be treated. He was rejected by men. They despised him. They hated him. John opens with these words in John 1. He came to his own, and his own received him not. In John 6, as Jesus is instructing the crowds, uh, they are offended at him, and they reject him, and they leave him in protest. Throughout his ministry, Jesus was despised and rejected, and Jesus did not receive that rejection dispassionately. It pained him. It grieved him. He felt the pain of rejection, such that he cried out over Jerusalem in Matthew 23, verse 37, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under his wings, but you were not willing. When Pilate gave the crowds the choice between Jesus and Barabbas the scoundrel, they chose Barabbas and urged that Jesus be crucified. They despised him and they regarded him as a most wicked kind of criminal, and he would become as one from whom men hide their faces. They wouldn't, they couldn't even look at him. He was appalling to them. He was despicable to them. He was revolting to them. And in verse 3, we have that extraordinary heading that is written over the life and suffering of Jesus. He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. It's that line that forms the first line of one of our favorite hymns that we sing here, a line that I think captures something of the paradox of this verse. Man of sorrows, what a name. For the Son of God who came, ruined sinners to reclaim. The Lord of glory, the Davidic king, would come as a man of sorrows, despised and rejected by men. Who would have conceived of it this way? Uh, My my non-Christian friend here this morning, you don't profess to be a Christian, I wonder if you were starting your own religion or movement and you had to come up with your savior, uh, hero, leader of the movement, figure guy, how would he look? Not like this. But what this passage reveals to us is that the Son of God, the Messiah, the Davidic King, he would not come with fanfare with pomp and with circumstance, with chariots and armies, or to the sound of thunderous applause. He would come as a man of sorrows and one familiar with grief. His life would be a life of suffering and sorrow. Now, there are so many points of application that just spring out of these verses here. I want to highlight just two at this point. Two points of application from these verses. First of all, we should all appreciate that this, what this passage is revealing to us about Jesus. He would be a man familiar with suffering, grief, and sorrow. And friends, the New Testament reveals that it is these very experiences, his acquaintance with grief, his familiarity with sorrow, that suit him to be a sympathetic savior to his people. A sympathetic high priest, an intercessor, and friend of sinners. Because he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, he is able, therefore, to sympathize with us in all of our sufferings and our sorrow. Brothers and sisters, Jesus knew what it was like to be lonely, to be ostracized, to be criticized, to be unjustly slandered and maligned, to be persecuted, to be betrayed, to be abandoned. Jesus understood all of this. This is who he was. This was the story of his life. He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. This is what he experienced as the suffering servant. And because the Lord suffered, He is therefore able to sympathize with those who suffer. Because He was tempted, He is able to help those who are being tempted. Because He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, He can come to the aid of those who find themselves in suffering and in sorrow and in grief that overwhelm their hearts. And He is able to provide grace to help in time of need. There is nothing you can experience at the level of human suffering that Jesus cannot understand or enter into. My friend, listen to me. If you are suffering, if you are in grief, 
never make the mistake of thinking, the Lord doesn't understand you. The man of sorrows, the one acquainted with grief, he understands you perfectly. And my friend, I will tell you, whatever you suffer in this life, it is not worse than what he suffered. You haven't suffered like this. To anticipate a further revelation of this passage, you have not suffered under the punishment and chastisement of holy God against your sins as Christ did for you. Christian, do you know what you can say that Christ could never say? You can say, Christian, in all my sufferings, God has never forsaken me. But of course, Jesus couldn't say that. For the pinnacle of his suffering was that the Father turned his face away as he crushed his son, such that the Lord Jesus cried out from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? No Christian need ever say that. No Christian could say that with any degree of truth. Because in all of our sorrows and sufferings, the Lord is with us. And he sympathizes with us, the man of sorrows acquainted with grief. But there's a second point of application I'd like to introduce here. And I can already feel the anxiety emerging. Is he ever going to get through this sermon? Just trust me. The second lesson is a lesson for discipleship. We must all recognize that the suffering servant of Isaiah 53 is our Lord. The one we serve. The one we follow the one we seek to imitate. This is how he's described to us. And a servant is not better than his master. Jesus was a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. He was despised, opposed, and rejected. We do not follow one, brothers and sisters, whose life was just an unbroken series of victories and happy days. We follow one who was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, a man who was esteemed not. What should this teach us about Christian discipleship? A servant is not greater than his master. If they despise the master, his servants will be despised. If they rejected the master, his servants will be rejected. If he was hated by the world, Jesus makes this transparently clear in no uncertain terms in John 15 that we too as his followers will be hated. My friend, if you are not willing to follow this suffering servant wherever he leads, even into opposition, you are something other than a Christian. This is our Lord, and we follow him. And like him, as the author to the Hebrews said, we bear his reproach. The author to the Hebrews says in Hebrews 13, verse 12, So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us... Go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. So many passages that say a similar thing. He suffered, and so we who follow him will suffer. He was despised and rejected, and so we, his followers, will be despised and rejected. Of course, never precisely like he was. None of us will suffer the wrath of God as he did, but we will suffer at the hands of the world on his account. And so I'm always a bit caught off guard when I meet with Christians who act surprised when they encounter opposition. Look at your Lord. What did you expect? A servant is not greater than his master. But I have to be honest, I am surprised at how some Christians seem to be so unprepared for the fact that Christianity leads to various forms of opposition. And I've wondered, like, why this is. And maybe I'm reflecting my age here. I mean, it could be um, our situation in America. Maybe we've had it too good for too long. And so now in this era we live in where Christianity is not only uh, seen as uninteresting, but it's also seen as antisocial and bigoted, uh, that we're surprised that we experience the kind of opposition that we experience. But if I could just thread the needle a little further pastorally, I'll say I'm especially concerned for the younger generation on this point. So my younger friend here, uh, your generation's allergy to opposition doesn't mix very well with biblical Christianity. Uh, it's sort of like uh, 
someone who wants to get into skydiving and says, yes, sign me up. I would love to get involved in skydiving as long as there are no heights involved. That's just part of the deal. There's no skydiving that doesn't involve heights. There's no Christianity that doesn't involve suffering. Like in the Christian deal, opposition and suffering is part of the package. My friend, when you came to Christ at first, did you fail to notice the wounds in his hands and his feet? Did you fail to see the crown of thorns? Did you miss the crucifixion, the mocking and the jeering? Did you miss our passage this morning in Isaiah 53 that describes him as the man of sorrows and acquainted with grief? Or were you just looking at the glory beyond his shoulders? Failing to recognize that the shape of the Bible and the shape of the Lord's life and the shape of the Christian life is suffering and then glory. It's precisely because of this point I'm making now that I've begun to ask young people in membership interviews, are you willing to follow Christ, to give your life to Him, to obey Him, to serve Him, to identify with Him and His church, even if that means you lose all your friends, And not only that, you are publicly ostracized, blackballed, and ridiculed. Are you willing to lose your family for him? The Lord says, he who loves father or mother more than me, or son or daughter more than me, is not worthy of me. Are you willing to die for him? For the Lord says, forever would save his life, will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. But it's not just younger people. Many churches today's friends are distancing themselves from this view of Jesus as a man despised by the people. We think we can somehow dress him up and put makeup on him and give him a winning personality and give him lessons in how to win friends and influence people. And we sort of come up with a culturally in vogue kind of Jesus who is somehow exactly everything our culture wants and desires. Isn't it true? The church in our day invests so much attention in being a kind of marketing agency for Jesus. Like it's our job to manage his PR. The Jesus we market is one who will never go against the grain of your personality. He'll never call you to any great cost. He certainly won't offend anybody by calling anyone to any real repentance. No, friends, behold your Lord, the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. For this Jesus, this servant, there is no PR campaign that is going to change the fact that he was the man of sorrows, that he was despised and rejected by men, and men haven't gotten any wiser. This is still the natural response to the real Jesus who is. Will you dress this Jesus up? Will you win the world's favor with this appalling picture of the man of sorrows? This is why we as a church must be committed not to tamper with the message we've been given or seek to add anything extravagant to the message or to try to manipulate people by hiding certain aspects of who Jesus is or what he calls us to or somehow dressing him up to fit cultural preferences in order to make the message less offensive or somehow get people more interested. Remember, friends, you can hardly call people to confess their sins and flatter them at the same time. And you can't tell people, excuse me, you can't call people to genuine saving faith in Jesus if you call them to a Christ who is nothing more than the epitome of cultural tastes and preferences. The servant will be despised and rejected by men. Stanza three. Stanza three. Stanza one, the servant will suffer and then be exalted. Stanza two, the servant will be despised and rejected by men. Stanza three, the servant will become our substitute. Look at verse 4. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. In this third stanza, verses 4 through 6, we come to find the solution to the Old Testament's greatest problem. To your greatest problem. 
to my greatest problem. How a holy God can make sinners right with him. We've read all these terrible things about this servant of the Lord. He's marred beyond human semblance. He's despised. He's rejected. He's a man of sorrows. He's acquainted with grief. Why? Why this presentation? Why did he have to suffer like this? Why is he a suffering servant? Here in this stanza, we learn it was all so that our sins could be dealt with. My friend, if you've been gone for most of this sermon, come back for the next 10 minutes. In the next 10 minutes, I want to hold forth from this passage the things that make for your salvation and everlasting life. There is in these verses the hope of the forgiveness of sins, the solution to our greatest problem. Come back for these 10 minutes. These verses represent both the heart of this song of the suffering servant as well as the heart of the biblical gospel. At the heart of the biblical gospel and at the heart of this passage is what theologians have referred to as penal substitutionary atonement. Our kids at VBS this week were taught by Rex about penal substitutionary atonement. What does that theological term mean? The kids could probably tell you. A penal penalty, condemnation, judgment, a penalty being endured. Substitutionary, someone substituting themselves in our place. Atonement. Forgiveness, a covering, a sacrifice that satisfies the demands of judgment. Penal, substitutionary, atonement, or as I will say in this message simply, substitution. What do I mean by substitution, which is at the heart of these verses? It's described so well in that song I referenced a moment ago about the man of sorrows. Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place, Condemned he stood. Six words. Give on a better definition of penal substitutionary atonement. In my place, condemned he stood. This is Jesus in our place, bearing our sins as a substitute. And it is the heart of the biblical gospel. Verse 4 He has borne our griefs. The griefs were ours, he bore them. He carries our sorrows. The sorrows were ours. He carried them. You see, we learn here that the man of sorrows acquainted with grief was not so because there were sorrows and griefs that were endemic to his nature and part of his personality. No, he was the man of sorrows acquainted with grief precisely because he took to himself our sorrows and our griefs. And how did he do this? In what way did he bear our griefs and carry our sorrows? Verse 5 brings the picture into sharper focus. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds or by his wounds, we are healed. Here we have taught imputation. Particularly the imputation of our sins to Jesus. The Bible teaches that in going to the cross and suffering the wrath of God in our place, Jesus did so by taking our sins to Himself. Just as the priest in the Old Testament would lay his hands on the Lamb, signifying a transfer of the sins of the people to that Lamb. The sins would be laid on that Lamb, and then the Lamb would be driven out of the camp. So our sins are laid on Jesus as a substitute. The transfer happens where God looks upon Jesus as the one bearing our sins, and pours out His wrath upon Jesus as a substitute in our place. And thus the words of John in John 1.29 can be fulfilled. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Friends, this is the heart of the biblical gospel. The good news. Jesus bearing the punishment of my sins in my place. Jesus suffering the judgment and wrath of God in my place. Jesus shedding His blood in my place as a substitute. Friends, this is so important. The gospel is not that God is near to you. 
the gospel is not that God believes in you and affirms you, or that He answers prayers, or that He's generally loving and benevolent towards humanity. The gospel is not that God is in control of everything. Friends, all of these things I've said are in some sense true, but they're not the gospel. The gospel is the good news that God has been pleased to make a way of salvation for rebellious sinners where there was no way. The gospel is the good news that God has sent His Son, the Lord Jesus, into the world as an incarnate man to suffer the punishment that our sins deserve as a substitutionary sin-bearing sacrifice. The gospel is the good news that Jesus Christ has gone to the cross and has died for the sins of His people and has risen from the dead according to the Scriptures such that whoever turns from sin and trusts in His sacrifice will be saved. The Gospel is the good news about what the Son of God has done on behalf of needy sinners in shedding His own blood in our place. There is no salvation apart from faith in this message. My friend, does that message embarrass you? Is it too vulgar for you? Do you find it offensive and repulsive to your sensitivities? Or have you found in the shed blood of Jesus the complete forgiveness of all your sins and the gift of everlasting life? Have you found in those wounds your healing? My friends, your sins cannot be dealt in any other way. It will not happen through a program of therapy. It will not happen through the power of positive thinking. It will not come through the will of the flesh. It will not come through a regiment of religious formalism or good deeds. God has offered one way. It is the suffering servant, the Lord Jesus, who has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, who was fierce for our transgressions, and crushed for our iniquities, who has given Himself as a sacrifice for sins, the only substitute, the only mediator between God and man. Your only hope in life and in death is that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, has fully paid for all your sins with His precious blood and has set you free from the tyranny of Satan, the tyranny of self, the tyranny of sin. That's our only hope before a just and holy God. What Jesus, the suffering servant, has done in our place. There is no other hope but in the Lord Jesus Christ and His substitution for us. And then we read the well-known words in verse 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. I wonder how you think of that image the Bible so often uses to describe us, a sheep. Christian, when you hear of yourself described as a sheep, do you think, well, is it that sweet? What an adorable image for the Lord to use to describe me. I wonder if that's the way George Frederick Handel thought of that image. If you're familiar with Handel's Messiah, you sing it around Christmas time, uh, there's a lot of reflection on Isaiah 53 and Handel's Messiah. It reflects on this verse. But when he gets to this verse, it's like this very light and bouncy, almost playful tune. It's in a major key. All we like sheep have gone astray. It's almost like a children's song. Is that how you think of that image? Friends, I don't want to offend you, though here I go. That image is meant to emphasize not that we're cute or adorable to God, but that we're wayward, obstinate, and frankly dumb. That we would inflict harm on ourselves if left to our own devices. That we would stray to the destruction of our souls had the shepherd not done something for us. 
I mentioned last week my wife and I were able to go to England a few months ago. We saw plentiful illustrations of the waywardness of sheep. We were staying in the countryside in this, it was kind of like a farm, and there was a B&B that we were staying at, and it's kind of down in this valley in Cornwall, and you go down this long drive, down at the top, there's a mailbox in this long drive, it's like half a mile down into this valley where we were kind of tucked away to stay. And on either side of the drive, there were pastures of sheep. And one night we were coming in, and we pulled into the drive, and there are four sheep sitting there in the drive. And I thought, okay, they must have gotten out of the pasture. No big deal. Um, I'll honk the horn, and they'll move. That, that didn't quite work. And they said, well, what I'll do is I'll just inch toward them. I'm not going to hit them, but I'll inch toward them, and they'll know this big thing is coming. There's danger. And they'll just do, you could have gone into either pasture, just jump out of the road, and you'll be safe, and you'll be fine. That did not work either. Uh, so I start moving the car, and the sheep sort of gallop along. They just sort of jog down the drive. And I don't know if you've ever seen sheep run. They run at like three miles an hour. And I kid you not, for about 20 minutes, we followed these sheep down the drive. To be delivered, to be saved from impending doom, all they had to do was go to the left or the right. But they're sheep. They're wayward. They're dumb. It didn't get through to them. We saw another illustration of this later on in the Lake District. There was a sheep. We were walking down uh, some path, footpath, and like that. And a sheep had sort of jumped through the barbed wire. Uh, and it was a young lamb and was struggling and wrestling there to get out of the barbed wire. And it was, it was terrifying to see because the sheep was cutting itself up and injuring itself, trying to wriggle out of this barbed wire. We were with my friend, uh, Kilby Austin, who Dr. Robertson, you know, uh, a, a sweet American girl who then went to Africa, worked, I think, with Dr. Robertson, perhaps, and then uh, be, went to England, married a Brit, she's a lovely British gal now. She was with us, and so she knew what to do. She intervened, she pulled this sheep to safety, and threw it over the stall. And I thought, this is the image that God has used to describe us. That sheep left to himself would have killed himself. And I thought, my friend Kilby, great British lady that she is, she's the picture that we're given of Christ, the shepherd and overseer of our souls. You know the version of Psalm 23 we sing? Perverse and foolish, oft I've strayed, and yet in love he sought me, and on his shoulders gently laid, and home rejoicing brought me. This is the picture that Peter gives us. I think the thickest allusion to Isaiah 53 in 1 Peter 2. He says, He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By His wounds you are healed. For you were straying, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned each one to our own way. I need to begin to wrap up. I'm just going to mention stanza four. I'm not going to open it up. Stanza four, verses seven through nine. The title of this heading is, The Servant Will Suffer Willingly Unto Death. That is, he's not just going to be injured. He's going to die. Isaiah 53, verse seven. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that before it shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Isaiah is in effect saying, while we're talking about sheep, there's a way in which the Lord was like a sheep. In the way that a sheep goes to the slaughter. If you've ever seen a sheep on the way to the slaughter, they don't know what's going on, they're silent. Sheep don't protest their own death. Verse 8, by oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And then we read in no uncertain terms that he dies. Verse 9, they made his grave with the wicked. Jesus was crucified between two criminals. Then with a rich man in his death, perhaps a reference to Joseph of Arimathea, we sang, they laid him down in Joseph's tomb, a rich man. Although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Stanza five. If you're taking notes, I'll review all five now. 
Stanza one, the servant will suffer and then be exalted. Stanza two, verses one through three, the servant will be despised and rejected by men. Stanza three, verses four through six, the servant will become our substitute. Stanza four, the servant will suffer willingly unto death. And stanza five, the servant will triumph over death and will be satisfied with the fruits of his sacrifice. The servant will triumph over death and will be satisfied with the fruits of his sacrifice. Look with me at verse 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. This was God's will that the Son would suffer in the place and in the stead of sinners. This is exactly what's conveyed in John 3.16. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, gave as an offered up, sacrificed His own Son, that whoever believes in Him will not perish but have everlasting life. It was the will of the Lord, out of love for sinners, to crush His Son. Look at verse 11 with me now. Oh, excuse me, still in verse 10. Second half, when his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. What's happening here? We were just reading about his burial and his death, but now we learn the Lord is going to prolong his days. The suffering servant will live. Death won't have the final word in his case. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hands. And then verse 11, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. It's a glorious picture of what the suffering servant has achieved. God will look on the anguish of his soul unto death, his suffering and his passion, his sacrifice and his substitution. He shall see and he will be satisfied. God is satisfied with the sacrifice that has been made. The demands of justice have been satisfied. Atonement for sin has been made. The debt has been paid. The great transaction has been accomplished. And Christ Himself has looked upon the fruits of His death. And He Himself is satisfied. Which means, my friend, no further satisfaction needs to be made. What a joy to know that God is not waiting to be satisfied by what you do. He is satisfied by what He has done in His Son. Our situation, my friends, someone needs to hear this. Our situation is not that we are seeking to satisfy the will of this capricious, exacting, demanding, unbending God. No, the message of the Bible, the message of the gospel is that God's demands of justice were satisfied in Christ's substitution of Himself. And Christ Himself has looked upon the fruits of His death and He Himself is satisfied, which means no further satisfaction needs to be made. If God and Christ are satisfied with the atonement that's been made, who are we to be unsatisfied? There are no demands left for us to satisfy. I'll conclude with this word. We need to be done. Today and throughout centuries, in the Jewish lectionary, each week, if you were to go to synagogue, uh, they read portions of the Scripture. And they read a lot of Scripture in Isaiah. They read all of the servant passages. I mentioned there are five of them, except for Isaiah 53. Uh, you can look this up. There are online versions of the Jewish lectionary that they read at temples, they read at synagogues. Literally, one day they read Isaiah 52, 1 through 12, and then they come back the next day and pick up in Isaiah 54, verse 1. That's not because they have a different Old Testament Bible than you do. This is because Isaiah 53 has led to great confusion in the Jewish community. Uh, many feel it's too easily misunderstood. It has too often and for too long misled people into believing that Isaiah foretold of the coming of Jesus of Nazareth, who came to be the Messiah and to die as a substitute to suffer the punishment for the sins of his people. I can clear up the confusion. The fact is that Jesus of Nazareth is the fulfillment of Isaiah 53. The Davidic son who would reign on his father's throne forever 
would also come as the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. And he must come as the suffering servant of Isaiah 53, or we're all damned. There is no hope unless the Lord would substitute Himself in our place to bear the punishment and the wrath that we deserve. Penal substitutionary atonement in my place. He stands condemned that I might go free, that I might be saved, that I might have the forgiveness of my sins. And so even this day, Isaiah 53, verse 1, is being fulfilled. It's being fulfilled among the Jews and among many among the nations. Who has believed what he has heard from us? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? My friend, I have done my best to preach the clear, plain, unvarnished gospel this morning. Do you believe the report that you have heard this morning? There's a promise in this passage that not all will reject him. Did you catch it? By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. Think of that. All your sins, all that would make you ashamed, all that has introduced a barrier and a breach between you and a just and holy God laid on Jesus such that He would be punished instead of you. The precise punishment that you deserved, that you might be accounted righteous, justified in the sight of God. Here we have the solution to the Bible's problem, the solution to our problem. We can be made right with the Holy God through the suffering servant, through Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who is a Savior for sinners and is willing to stand as a substitute in our place to endure the just penalty and condemnation that we deserve. It is the will of God that many through Christ would be counted righteous. And I assure you on the basis of His Word, you can go home today righteous in the sight of holy God. Not through some sleight of hand trick, not through some fiction, not through God just, you know, oh, well, forget about it. I'll be, you know, a kind of fuzzy, gooey Santa Claus type of God today. No, through God honestly and sincerely looking at your sins in the face, all that you've done, all that makes you ashamed, taking your sins and placing them on Jesus. And as those priests in the Old Testament laid their hands to transfer, to signify the transfer of the guilt of sinful man to this lamb, this substitute, this sacrifice. So God will be pleased. He will be satisfied to receive the merits of His Son's death in your place that you might be saved. I call you, friends, to repent of your sins. Put your faith and trust in this way, the only way of salvation that God has made. And where God has been satisfied, may we all be satisfied. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we pray. We plead with you that each one of us here would be enabled by your grace to say, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Lord, without Christ, we are without hope and without God in the world. If you would look on us covered in the stains of our own sins, there's not for us but the just wrath of God and an everlasting hell. We so need you to see us through Jesus Christ, your Son, the way that you have made. Lord, we know that the way is narrow that leads to eternal life. Help our souls to find that way now. Lord, be pleased 
to take all of our sins and all of our shame, all of our guilt, and place it on Christ our Savior. Deliver us, we pray, that we might be your sons and daughters and might be counted righteous, pardoned, forgiven, free in your sight. We pray together in Jesus' name. Amen.